Welcome to Mintcast, the podcast by the Linux Mint community for all users of Linux. This is episode 429, recorded on Sunday, January 21st, 2024, frozen in Texas, I'm Joe. And not much warmer in Florida, I'm Eric. First up in the news, Mint 21.3 release Linux kernel 4.14 goes EOL. Google sued over patent infringement. OpenSSH phases out DSA keys. Canonical snap steams Valve. Insecurity and privacy, Noahbot worms its way into Linux. Pixie boot vulnerabilities show up in UEFI and Slippybook rears its head. Then in our wanderings, I buy things cheap and Eric talks audio production. In our innard section, we're probably not going to have one today because nobody's feeling excessively well. And finally, the feedback and a couple of suggestions. First up in the news, Mint 21.3 released. This is from the Linux Mint blog. Mint 21.3 Virginia was released on Friday, January 12th. It now comes with full support for secure boot compatibility with a wide variety of BIOS and EFI implementation. In Hypnotics, you can now set channels as favorites and create your own channels. In Warpinator, it is now possible to connect to another device manually, either by entering its IP address or on mobile by scanning a QR code. Sticky, the Notes app, receives support for dbus commands. This makes it possible to manage notes from scripts or key bindings. In Slick Reader, the login screen, the alignment of the login box is now configurable. Bulky, the batch file renaming tool, receives support for thumbnails and drag and drop. In Pix, video playback now takes the video orientation into account and automatically rotates it. The backup tool, Mint Backup, now features a header bar and an about dialog. A color picker was added to the Zap XDG desktop portal. And as usual, Linux Mint 21.3 features a superb collection of new background artwork. There were no changes to the Mate and XFCE desktop versions, but the Cinnamon version was updated to version 6.0, which includes experimental Wayland support. Just an aside, Moss and Londoner participated in a bug report on Mint Stick 121 and 122, which got patched within a day. You run some machines with Mint, right? Yeah. Did you do the update? I did. I did. Now, I did not was not able to do the normal just open the software updater and um, refresh it and click through. I had to manually run... Um, well, Mint, mint upgrade or something, yeah. Mint, mint up, yeah. The mint upgrade tool, yeah, and force it. But then <laughs> um, everything happened just the way that it's supposed to. Are you using alternate mirrors? Like, did it not know? No, maybe? no, oh, okay. no. I, I didn't even set local mirrors. So whatever it was using originally, that's what it had, and it just wasn't seeing it or wasn't updated properly. I did that on a couple of machines, and I don't even think I had to reinstall some of the the things that weren't automatically a part of the update, oh. like the um, the flat packs. Gotcha. Um, 
and and some of the alternate repos that I use. Everything, every, everything that I noticed just worked fine afterwards. Yeah, I was surprised at how seemingly, and I have a decent internet connection, but I just felt like it wasn't a gigantic update, which is kind of true to form for them. I mean, you read through the release notes in a fairly short order there. So, um, but I just love that there are always like these small quality of life kind of pragmatic updates that are unlikely to cause problems for most people. Um, I'm sure there were lots of bug fixes too. Yeah. And this didn't really talk about, you know, the, the, the big one, the, the, uh, well, it did. Um, it did. Add, it says, which includes experimental Wayland support. So it didn't get into that too heavily and yeah. probably for good reason because it's <laughs> there, but I don't think anything is, you know, really set up for it or anything. It's so that they can start the process of converting to Wayland, which should happen in like the next two releases or something. Yeah. And yeah. I didn't even see how to test that, but I didn't really look all that deep either. It's on the logon screen. So if you, uh, when you're logging okay, in, like normally when you yeah. can switch from like cinnamon to, to mate right. or whatever other desktop you have installed, you can switch to cinnamon Wayland, I assume. Yeah. Yeah. It just, it has cinnamon and then it'll, it says the session type behind it. There's a couple, there's software rendering, which has always been an option. And then right. Wayland, um, from what I've heard though, from people who have been testing it out, it's surprisingly complete <laughs> for like a mm. literal first alpha release um which i guess doesn't surprise me necessarily uh this you know it is gtk uh based and there's probably going to be some heavy lifting that gnome did that you know they can take advantage of right you know stuff like that so it's not all that surprising but they are definitely you're right committing to like a long time frame before they like i think 2025 I think is what yeah, they said. I think they're going to be uh, one of the last ones to to switch to Wayland, but yeah, I'm okay with that. Yeah, me too. Absolutely. All right. Well, Linux kernel 4.14 reaches end of life after more than six years of maintenance. This is from Linux Today. Greg Croa Hartman announced January 12th on the Linux kernel mailing list that the release of Linux 4.14.336 as what appears to be the last maintenance update to the long-term supported Linux 4.14 kernel series, which is now marked as EOL or end of life on the kernel.org website. Do you find yourself using older kernels for any reason? No, no. Uh, I mean, there was a time when I did um, on some tablets just because, you know, things get added, things get removed. But recently I've been trying to keep on the most recent kernel possible and I've had just less problems that way. Yeah. And I, I think obviously long-term support releases are going to have older kernels. The, you know, Mint 21.3 is 5.15 and we're up to like 6.6 at this point, I think. Yeah. Well, it's, it's been a long time since I've had to switch to an older kernel for anything. Um, that, you know, I can remember a couple of times where like on this laptop or something where, you know, you do the kernel update and then the thing won't start. And so you have to switch back to the older one, but that that's usually a very temporary thing. So, and like a point release or something. Yeah. Not, not like two releases back. Yeah. Okay. Google's TPUs could end up costing it a billion plus thanks to its patent challenge and this is from the register allegations that google tensors processing units tpus 
were developed using Solon designs are being put to the test as a jury trial brought against the search giant by Singular Computing kicks off this week. Google is accused of infringement, infringing patents held by Singular and developed by computer scientist Joseph Bates, an academic turned startup founder. According to his LinkedIn profile, Bates held research and teaching positions at Cornell, MIT, Carnegie Mellon, and Johns Hopkins universities in the U.S. between 1980 until 2011. In 2005, Bates founded Singular Computing to commercialize various computing architectures. According to Singular's website, the biz develops and licenses hardware and software technologies for high-performance, energy-efficient computing, both large-scale and embedded. Singular's legal spat with Google dates back to late 2019 when Bates filed a lawsuit in a Massachusetts federal court against the cloud titan. According to the complaint, Bates this disclosed various technologies he had come up with to Google under a non-disclosure agreement on three occasions between 2010 and 2014. During this time, Singular said Bates made Google aware the technologies in question were patent protected. The patents, said to have been first filed in 2009 and made public in 2010, described a computer architecture designed to execute a large number of low-precision calculations each processor cycle. While this lower precision may be impractical for conventional compute workloads, the <clears throat> complaint argues it's well-suited to AI software that can accommodate this lower precision. Singular Computing also emphasized that these technologies don't just exist on paper as a prototype based on the designs was constructed shortly after the first patent application was filed. The patents in question are listed in the show notes. Singular contends Google deliberately incorporated Bates architectures into its TPU v2 and v3 processors without permission or license, and thus knowingly infringed the associated patents. TPUs being the custom AI accelerated chips Google designed with outside help to use in cloud to speed up the training of neural networks and their decision making. Jeff Dean, today Google's chief scientist wrote to colleagues about how Bates' designs could be really well suited for the web Goliath's workloads, according to internet emails surfaced by the complaint. Google's legal team, meanwhile, argued no one who worked on the TPUs had any connection with Bates or his blueprints. Google has repeatedly denied these allegations of patent infringement in a statement to the register. A spokesperson said, Singular's patent claims are dubious and currently on appeal. They don't apply to our tensor processing units, which we developed independently over many years. We look forward to setting the record straight in court. By appeal, the PR person is referring to a separate U.S. appeals court case being heard this week in which Google will present arguments as to why Singular's patents should be considered invalid. Big G is essentially trying to get the patents thrown out to crash Singular's infringement complaint. Google's TPUs introduced in 2016 were first developed to power the machine learning features baked into things like Gmail, Google Maps, and YouTube. At a high level, the accelerators are these days essentially a bunch of brain float matrix math machines called MXUs supported by some high bandwidth memory and a few CPU cores to make it programmable. Now in their fifth generation, Google is pushing the silicone as an alternative to GPUs for cloud-based AI training and inference workloads. The main trial, which kicked off Monday, is expected to last at, le at least two weeks. According to pre-trial documents filed by Google, Singular is seeking between $1.6 and $5.19 in damages in the form of a lump sum payment if the jury determines the company's patents were infringed. 
Now, I'm, I'm going to say that it's interesting that they're trying to get the patents thrown out in order to avoid um, admitting that they infringed on said patents. Yeah, that is an interesting approach to it, isn't it? Right. Uh, we know we screwed up, but uh, we're going to try and make it so that we didn't screw up by uh, getting it all thrown out. <laughs> I really wonder where the appeals trial is going to be, because I know that there are definitely some districts in the country that are sympathetic to big business. Right. So, I, I mean, that's opening uh, openly admitting that they stole something and then they're just going to try and make it invalid that they stole something. Yeah. Yeah. And Tensor is a pretty significant uh, focus for them because that's in their devices. You know, the uh, Pixel devices all have Tensor chips in them to do local AI processing. And as far as I know, Honestly, they all... I think that 1.6 to 5.9 is, or 5.19 is probably a little low considering how much money Google's going to make on this. I mean, yeah. in the long term. Yeah. I mean, and they, they took a business away from this guy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it seems fair that, you know, you're right. They're probably going to make at least that much, if not more. And, and, and if they had collaborated with him properly in the beginning, then none of this would be an issue. Yeah. Yep. And you just have that, that culture there that, you know, they, they push really hard to get new product and, and software. And those ideas are coming from somewhere. And, you know, even, even if sometimes it's an honest mistake, like it's not impossible to think that obviously they were influenced. And if there wasn't merit, I don't think this would even be a story, frankly. Yeah. I don't think this is the first time where they've done those type of meetings and, you know, had the non-disclosure agreements and worked out how things work and, and just essentially stole something from an interview or something like that. It's not the first time I've heard about it. So oh, I, I saw it myself with competitors that we had where it was a pretty incestuous market where you'd have a lot of people crossing between companies getting leaving here to get an, a you know a raise or a better position at a competitor there really wasn't non-compete necessarily in place so people would take their ideas and it happened all the time and i mean it was just sort of a strategy i think <laughs> they, they kind of yeah. said well if you're willing to pay someone more or with google they didn't end up hiring the person they just ended up taking the idea from them yeah oh yeah well that's true you know what? It's curious. I'm curious to see if they actually find a sympathetic jury somewhere to, uh, you know, to. Well, Google's going to try and find the legal loophole as opposed sure. to, you know, taking any accountability or anything. Sure. So. All right. So OpenSSH announces plans to phase out DSA keys. This is from Linux EAC. Linux EAC. In a move aimed at bolstering digital security, OpenSSH has announced its plan to phase out support for DSA keys, a decision informed by the algorithm's inherent weaknesses and the evolution of more secure alternatives. But first, let's shed more light on what DSA is for our readers. DSA, which stands for Digital Signature Algorithm, is a cryptographic algorithm for digital signatures and authentication and a key component in the SSH v2 protocol. However, its limitations have long been recognized, particularly its restriction to 160-bit private key and reliance on the SHA-1 digest. These constraints render its security level equivalent to less than or equal to 80 bits in symmetric encryption, a standard considered insufficient in the current cybersecurity landscape. Despite being the only mandatory to implement algorithm in the SSH v2 RFCs, mainly due to patent encumbrances on 
alternative algorithms when SSH v2 was developed, DSA has fallen behind more robust options like RSA, ECDSA, and EDDSA in terms of security and performance. Of course, this will not happen overnight. Instead, OpenSSH has outlined a phased approach. Here's the plan. March 2024, estimated, DSA will become optional at compile time, but enabled by default in the next OpenSSH release. This change allows users and distributors to assess the impact of DSA's removal in their specific environments. June 2024, estimated a subsequent release will change the compile time default to disable DSA. However, it will remain an option for those who require it. Post-January 2025, the release first release after January 1st, 2025, will see the complete removal of DSA code from OpenSSH. For users with devices that only support DSA, OpenSSH recommends maintaining a legacy release of the OpenSSH client akin to the strategy adopted when SSH v1 protocol support was discontinued. Further discussions and inquiries about the DSA removal can be directed to the OpenSSH development mailing list or by contacting the developers directly. The only reason I could ever see for not updating when something is that weak is that somehow you just can't either get hold of the source code or, you know, there's there, maybe there's a hardware limitation. Like, I'm, I'm not sure why, you know, whenever you know it's a weak cipher that you wouldn't update it, but I don't know. I don't either. Um, especially with, yeah, something that old. Yeah. (laughs) Insecure. Yeah. All right. Moving on. Yep. Pipewire camera support is coming to OBS Studio for Linux desktops. This is from 9to5Linux. Google developer Georges Stavrakis was merged today. The Pipewire camera support into the master branch of the popular OBS Studio open source screencasting and streaming app. While it's not ready for prime time due to the lack of real consumers, this change to OBS Studio, which combines the Pipewire media framework and camera portal, promises to be the future of cameras on the Linux desktop, according to developer Georges Stavrakis. Since Pipewire camera support is now merged into OBS Studio Master, we should be able to see it in an upcoming release of the popular application in the form of new camera pipewire source, allowing us to stream from our webcams directly into OBS Studio. However, this feature may be marked as experimental in a future OBS Studio release as the devs still need to work on some aspects, such as support for camera resolutions and frame rates. Some bugs also need to be addressed, such as the fact that sometimes the selected camera isn't started automatically. George has also noted the fact that the new pipewire-based camera source supports why UY2 cameras, which means that many standard webcams out there should work without issues. The developer is currently working on adding support for MJPEG and H.264 streams as well, while NV12 support has been merged as well today. More details about this change can be found in this OBS Studio GitHub merge. There you'll find instructions on how to enable the new camera pipewire source if you plan on test driving it. But keep in mind that you'll have to clone the latest master branch and compile it from sources. This might be implemented in OBS Studio 31 or whatever the next major release will be version. The latest OBS Studio release is OBS Studio 30, 
which brought support for Intel QSV, QuickSync Video, H.264, HEVC, and AV1 on Linux. Yeah, I see why you wanted me to read that. Yeah, <laughs> that's completely understandable. Hey, you did a good job with the developer's name, way better than I would right. have. Uh, I, you know, it's funny when I read stories like this, it, it often fails to occur to me that Pipewire is actually still a fairly new thing. I, th I think it was such a strong transition that, I mean, I'm sure there's still lots of people who are using Pulse Audio, um, heck, Elsa, you know, for that matter. But right, right. Um, <clears throat> the fact that it went from experimental to standard within just, I want to say maybe two or three releases in some cases. I mean, that's pretty impressive. And then to see that they're still, you know, building in additional capabilities. Um, I mean, I, I know that for me, in general, it's not a hard and fast rule, but in general, Pipewire has been easier to deal with than Pulse Audio. It's I still have challenges every now and then. Um, sometimes my fault, <laughs> other times not. But yeah, um, I, I'm impressed about how quickly they were able to get that in and then how they continue to add more features. So good stuff. Right. Have you found that, especially with Bluetooth, I think is where I think... Uh, um, Pipewire has made my life a little easier. I used to have some pretty big challenges with Bluetooth on Pulse, but uh, Bluetooth has always been an issue in Linux. <laughs> um, it's just never sounded good, especially like a, a Bluetooth microphone would always uh -huh. sound like garbage. Yeah. And yeah. Um, Bluetooth output, uh, very compressed, uh, always disconnecting. Um, trouble reconnecting. I, I haven't tested it recently, to be honest. I've just kind of, you know, l let that dead dog lie there. So if it improves, I'm all for it and, and I'm willing to give it a try. But, um, yeah, Bluetooth headsets and, and Linux computers just don't mix. Yeah. Or, well, they haven't mixed in the past. So. <laughs> I guess I've just gotten lucky with it then. But, yeah. well, hopefully they'll continue to improve it. All right. Up next, Canonical's Steam Snap is causing headaches for Valve. This is from OMG Ubuntu. Timothy Bassett, a software engineer who works on the Steam client for Valve, took to Mastodon this week to reveal Valve is seeking an increasing number of bug reports for issues caused by Canonical's repackaging of the Steam client through Snap. We are not involved with the Snap repackaging. It has a lot of issues, Bassett adds, noting that the best way to install Steam on Debian and derivative operating systems is to use the official .deb file. Those who do not want to use the official deb package are instead asked to consider the Flatpak version, though like the Steam Snap, the Steam Flatpak is also unofficial and not directly supported by Valve, but unlike the Snap, it says so in its store listing. Oh, interesting. So I guess that's not distinguished in Snap. Canonical launched its Steam Snap in 2022 as a testing development preview. That effort lasted around 11 months, and the build was deemed stable in April of last year, in time for the release of 23.04. Because Canonical A develops snaps, and B packages and integrates the Steam client to work within the tech, any bugs, issues, or quirks stemming from the Steam Snap build should, in theory, be reported to them first rather than to Valve. After all, Canonical's engineers are best placed to know if an issue is Snap-related or something within Steam itself that upstream developers at Valve should know about. 
but it doesn't sound like that's happening. Why? I mean, do Ubuntu users know that they're using a Snap version not made by Valve? They open Ubuntu software, search for Steam, click the matching result, see a reassuring green tick, albeit next to Canonical rather than Valve, but it's a tick, and hit install, ergo the Steam Snap. While Ubuntu software and the newer App Center show display package filters and format source labels within the UI, as well developer package or names and support links, such features are only helpful to those who know what they mean or to look for them. Because it's easy to assume that anyone who uses Ubuntu breathes it too. I'd argue they don't. Ubuntu has a colossal install base, and there's a good chance most users don't know what a snap is, how it differs to traditional packaging, and arguably they shouldn't need to either. Still, some simple signposting within the Steam Snap to point users to the right avenues for reporting bugs would help shift the burden off of it, Valve. This is written so strangely. And with the recent launch of an Ubuntu gaming room on Matrix, there's plenty of places Ubuntu users can go to get advice on gaming. They just need to know about them, I guess. Could Canonical tweak their store description to mention their package is not supported or affiliated with Valve. Maybe, but the benefit would hinge on people reading the description, and I reckon most people look to install Steam wouldn't since they know what it is. If it gets really bad, I guess we could start popping a warning, snap back to the current situation, and there is another option. If Canonical Steam Snap continues to have issues with which cause Valve to be contact contacted by users unhappy with the experience, Timothy Bissett suggests the company could start popping up a warning to Steam Snap users when they open the app. While that would seem to be an extreme move, would it be unfair? Valve and its reputation to an extent is the one being affected as it stands. That was frustrating. That that was a little rough. That was a little rough. (laughs) Oh my. But he's right. I mean, most people aren't going to know the difference between a Snap and a Dev. Right. So, yeah. They just, you know, click the button to install it. And then when it doesn't work, contact the first name that comes up. And that's it. Let's move on to security and privacy. Linux devices are under attack by a never before seen worm. This is from Ars Technica. For the past year, previously unknown self-replicating malware has been compromising Linux devices around the world and installing crypto mining malware that takes unusual steps to conceal its inner workings, researchers said. The worm is a customized version of Mirai, the botnet malware that infects Linux-based servers, routers, web cameras, and other so-called Internet of Things devices. Mirai came to light in 2016 when it was used to deliver record-setting distributed denial-of-service attacks that paralyzed key parts of the internet that year. The creators soon released the underlying source code, a move that allowed a wide array of crime groups from around the world to incorporate Mirai into their own attack campaigns. Once taking hold of a Linux device, Mirai uses it as a platform to infect other vulnerable devices, a design that makes it a worm, meaning it self-replicates. Traditionally, Mirai and its many variants have spread when one infected device scans the internet looking for other devices that accepted Telnet connections. The infected devices then attempt to crack the Telnet password by guessing default and commonly used credential pairs. When successful, the newly infected devices target 
additional services using the same technique. Mirai has primarily been used to wage DDoSs. Given the large amounts of bandwidth available to many such devices, the floods of junk traffic are often huge, giving the botnet as a whole tremendous power. I'm, I'm going to pause the article right there before I continue reading. Wasn't Telnet declared like completely insecure like 25 years ago? Easily. Easily. Yeah. Oh, hmm. <laughs> it takes me back to my time as a teenager. Oh, doing horrible things on Telnet, I mean. <laughs> okay. No, no, never. <laughs> on Wednesday, researchers from network security and reliability firm Akamai revealed that a previously unknown Mirai-based network they dubbed Noabot has been targeting Linux devices since at least last January. Instead of targeting weak Telnet passwords, the Noabot targets weak passwords connecting SSH connections. Another twist, rather than performing DDoSs, the new botnet installs cryptocurrency mining software, which allows the attackers to generate digital coins using victims' computing resources, electricity, and bandwidth. The crypto miner is a modified version of XMRIG, a piece of legitimate open source software being abused by the threat actor. Akamai has been monitoring Nobot for the past 12 months in a honeypot that mimics real Linux devices to track various attacks circulating in the wild. To date, attacks have originated from 849 distinct IP addresses, almost all of which are likely hosting a device that's already infected. The following figure tracks the number of attacks delivered to the honeypot over the past year. On the surface, Noabot isn't a very sophisticated campaign. It's just a Mirai variant and an XMRIG crypto miner. And there are a dime a dozen nowadays. Akamai senior security research researcher Stiv Kupchek wrote in a report Wednesday. However, the obfuscations added to the malware and the additions to the original source code paint a vastly different picture of the threat actor's capabilities. The most advanced capability is how Noabot installs the XM rig variant. Typically, when crypto miners are installed, the wallet's funds are distributed to are specified in configuration settings delivered in a command line issued to the infected device. This approach has long posed a risk to threat actors because it allows researchers to track where the wallets are hosted and how much money has flowed into them. Noabot uses a novel technique to prevent such detection. Noabot uses a novel technique to prevent such detection. Instead of delivering the configuration settings through a command line, the botnet stores the settings in encrypted and or obfuscated form and decrypts them only after XMBrig is loaded into memory. The botnet then replaces the internal variable that normally would hold the command line configuration settings and passes control to the XMBrig source code. Kupchik offered a more technical and detailed description. In the XMBrig open source code, miners can accept configurations in one of two ways either via the command line or via environment variables. In our case, the threat actors chose not to modify the XM rig original code and instead added parts before the main function to circumvent the need for command line arguments, which can be an indicator of compromised IOC and alert defenders. The threat actors had the miner replace its own command line in technical, in technical terms, replacing argv with more meaningful arguments before passing control to the XM rig code. The botnet runs the miner with at most one argument that tells it to print its logs before replacing its command line. However, 
The miner has to build its configuration. First, it copies basic arguments that are stored plain text, the rig ID flag, which identifies the miner with three random letters, the threads flags, a placeholder for the pool's IP addresses. Curiously, because the configurations are loaded via the XMM registers, IDA actually misses the first two loaded arguments, which are the binary name and the pool IP placeholder. Next, the miner decrypts the pool's domain name. The domain name is stored encrypted in a few data blocks that are decrypted via XOR operations. Although XMRig can work with a domain name, the attackers decided to go the extra step and implemented their own DNS resolution function. They communicate directly with Google's DNS server 8.8.8.8 and parse its response to resolve the domain name to an IP address. The last part of the configuration is also encrypted in a similar way, and it is the passkey for the miner to connect to the pool. All in all, the total configuration of the miner looks something like it's in the show notes. Notice anything missing? Yep, no wallet address. We believe that the threat actors chose to run their own private pool instead of a public one, thereby eliminating the need to specify a wallet, their pool, their rules. However, in our samples, we observed that miners domains were not resolving with Google's DNS, so we can't really prove our theory or gather more data from the pool since the domains we have are no longer resolvable. We haven't seen any recent incident that drops the miner, so it could also be that the threat actors decided to depart for greener pastures. Other unusual differences include Noabot is compiled using the code library known as uclibc, whereas the standard Mirai uses the GCC library. The alternative library seems to change the way antivirus protections detect Noabot. Instead of being detected as a member of the Mirai family, AV engines categorize it as an SSH scanner or generic Trojan. The malware is statically compiled and stripped of any symbols. That makes reverse engineering the malware much harder. Strings, the human-readable words included in code, are obfuscated instead of saved as plain text. This tweak makes it harder still for reverse engineers to do things like extracting details from the binary or using IDA and other disassembly tools. The Noabot binary runs from a randomly generated folder in the lib directory, a design that makes searching devices for Noabot infections made still harder. The Noabot binary runs from a randomly generated folder in the slash lib directory, a design that makes searching devices for Noabot infections harder. The standard Mirai dictionary storing the list of commonly used passwords has been replaced with a new one so big that it's impractical for Akamai to test all of them. The variant also swaps out the Telnet scanner with a custom-made SSH scanner. The addition of a host of post-breach capabilities, including installing a new SSH authorized key for use by the attacker as a backdoor to download and execute additional binaries or propagate new devices. Okay, we are almost done with this article, just so everybody knows. While the operational security of the Noabot creators is high, they're also notable for the juvenile string names and other gratuitous additions in some <laughs> versions of their code. In one case, they added the lyrics to the song, Who's Ready for Tomorrow by Rat Boy and IBDY. Okay, I don't know that reference at all. The 849 distinct source IPs are spread relatively uniformly across the globe. The researchers say its uniformity is common for worms, which allow every new victim to be a new attacker as well. 
Something else that's not understood. What accounts for a hotspot of China located source IPs that generate roughly 10% of attacks? It's also unclear how many more IPs hosting the devices tar targeting the Akamai honeypot may exist. For that matter, whether some of the devices are actually run by the attackers in an attempt to speed their botnet, Akamai has published an extensive library of indicators that people can use to check for signs of an old bot on their devices. It includes a pre-configured instance of Akamai's Infection Monkey app for testing networks for signs of compromise. There's also a CSV file storing all indicators of compromise and Yara rules for detecting XM rig infections. It's hard to know at the moment if Noobot remains a botnet of less than 1,000 infected hosts or if Akamai Honeypot has seen only a fraction of the affected devices. Given the difficulty of detecting Noobot infections, the indicators of compromise library assembled by Akamai may prove valuable. And while you were reading that, at least 50 more <laughs> systems were right. compromised. Right. <sighs> well, buckle up because we got another one. This one is new UEFI vulnerabilities send firmware devs industry-wide scrambling. This is, uh, again, from Mars Technica. UEFI firmware from five of the leading suppliers contains vulnerabilities that allow attackers with a toehold in the user's network to infect connected devices with malware that runs at the firmware level. The vulnerabilities, which collectively have been dubbed Pixie fail by the researchers who discovered them pose a threat mostly to public and private data centers and possibly other enterprise settings. People with even minimal access to such a network, say a paying customer, a low-level employee, or an attacker who has already gained limited entry, can exploit the vulnerabilities to infect connected devices with the malicious UEFI. Short for Unified Extensible Firmware Interface, UEFI is the low-level and complex chain of firmware responsible for booting up virtually every modern computer. By installing malicious firmware that runs prior to loading of a main OS, UEFI infections can't be detected or removed user using standard endpoint, endpoint protections. They also give unusually broad control of the infected device. Five vendors and many a customer are affected. The nine vulnerabilities that compromise PixieFail reside in Tiano Core EDK2, an open source implementation of the UEFI specification. The implementation is incorporated into offerings from ARM Limited, Inside, AMI, Phoenix Technologies, and Microsoft. The flaws inside in, in functions related to IP6, the successor to IPv4 Internet Protocol Network Address System, they can be exploited in what's known as the PXE or preboot execution environment when it's configured to use IPv6. Well, that's interesting. PXE, sometimes colloquially referred to as Pixie Boot or Netboot, is a mechanism enterprises use to boot up large numbers of devices, which more often than not are servers inside of large data centers. Rather than the OS being stored on the device booting up, PXE stores the image of a central server known as a boot server. Devices booting up locate the boot server using the Dynamic Host Configuration Protocol, or DHCP, and then send a request for the OS image. PXE is designed for ease of use, uniformity, and quality assurance inside data centers and cloud environments. When updating or reconfiguring the OS, admins need to do so only once, and then ensure that hundreds or thousands of connected servers run it each time they boot up. By exploiting the Pixie fail vulnerabilities, an attacker can cause servers to download a malicious firmware image rather than the intended one. 
The malicious image in this scenario will establish a permanent beachhead on the device that's installed prior to loading of the OS and any security software that would normally flag infections. The vulnerability and proof of concept code demonstrated the presence of the vulnerabilities were developed by researchers from the security firm Quarks Lab, which published the findings Tuesday. The network presence required to exploit most of the vulnerabilities is relatively minor. Attackers need not establish their own malicious server or gain high-level privileges. Instead, the attacker only needs the ability to view and capture traffic as it traverses the local network. This kind of access may be possible when someone has a legitimate account with a cloud service or after first exploiting a separate vulnerability that gives limited system rights. With that, the attacker can then exploit PixieFail to plant a UEFI-controlled backdoor in huge fleets of servers. Quarks Lab's chief research officer, Ivan Arke, said in an interview, an attacker doesn't need to have physical access neither to the client nor the boot server. The attacker just needs to have access to the network where all these systems are running, and it needs to have the ability to capture packets and to inject packets or transmit packets. When the client-based server boots, the attacker just needs to send the client with a malicious, malicious packet in the request response that will trigger some of these vulnerabilities. The only access that the attacker needs is access to the network, not physical access to any of the clients, nor to the boot server or DHCP server. Just capturing packets or sending packets in the network where all these servers are running. For Pixie fail to be exploited, PXE must be turned on. For the overwhelming number of UEFIs in use, PXE isn't turned on. PXE is generally only used in data centers and cloud environments for rebooting thousands or tens of thousands of servers. Additionally, PXE must be configured to be used in combination with IPv6 routing. Pixie fail is a motley mix of different vulnerability types, ranging from buffer overflows and integer overflows, both of which allow for remote code execution, to the lack of standard but crucial security practices, such as a properly functioning pseudo-random number generator. There was also a TCP implementation that didn't follow a basic IETF RFC that has been recommended since 2012. There are, there's a list of nine vulnerabilities that I'm not going to read there in the show notes. They cover things like there's a failure in EDK2. There is a vulnerability from choosing an overly long server ID. So very, really simple things that it looks like it's kind of easy to exploit. Um, but if you're interested in those, uh, there are links to the nist.gov vulnerability details. The makers of the affected UEFIs are in the process of getting updates pushed out to customers, and from there, those customers are making patches available to their customers, who usually are end users. AMI confirmed the vulnerability affects its Optio V line, or probably Optio 5 line of firmware, and said it has made patches available to its customers. Microsoft, meanwhile, issued a statement that said the company was taking appropriate action without saying what that was. <laughs> Trust us. Microsoft also claimed in error, RK said, that exploiting the vulnerability required the attacker to first establish a malicious server on the affected network. RK says no such requirement exists. An attack only needs to be able to send packets on the network, he said. Also, the proof of concept code which we provide to all vendors, including Microsoft, does not set up any server. 
Microsoft didn't have a response to RK's analysis. Microsoft also noted the requirement of using PXE over IPv6 network. As a security best practice, we recommend disabling unused boot capabilities only using PXE or other protocols on trusted networks and using TLS over the internet, Microsoft officials added. Officials with ARM Inside and Phoenix didn't respond or didn't have a comment. As noted, Pixie fail isn't something most people need to worry about. The vulnerabilities, however, are most definitely something that cloud environments and data centers should greatly care about. After all, exploits allow someone with limited network access to suddenly backdoor any server in a network the next time it reboots. Over the course of a matter of weeks, this could lead to an entire fleet of infected machines. Out of an abundance of caution and in keeping with security in-depth principles, all end users should patch the vulnerabilities as well, but the urgency in this case is fairly relaxed. Users generally should look to their device or motherboard maker for an update. There's an update to the story. A little more than 13 hours after this post went live, Microsoft officials updated their statement to add, if an attacker is able to capture and transmit packets on the network, that is the ability to serve packets, they can pretend to be a server. Well, that definitely seems like something. Well, the last one there that that was basically saying that water's wet. Yeah. <laughs> that update. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I've thought about setting up Pixie a couple times. I really don't have a use case for it. I just wanted to do it to, you know, try it out and have fun. Yeah. But, um, yeah, most, most people are not going to be impacted by this. So if you do have a pixie boot then yeah just keep it on a secure network well what's interesting is they uh, i see pxe pretty widespread in like hospitals um you know i mean places where they're all dumb terminals i mean the whole point is that it boots up and then connects back to a central pxe server to download the image and so it's interesting that they're only really focusing on uh, data centers here because, I mean, I see PXE uh, pretty widespread, so. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think this article would have been a lot funnier if you'd have read that uh, that name as Arse, the way it's spelled. <laughs> it probably is Arse, and, and I, I will admit to being an ugly American who can't pronounce anything that isn't like Smith. <laughs> mm. So anyway, all right. Uh, hey. I, I don't know. I don't know. Like I said, it would have been funnier if it had been arse throughout the whole uh, <laughs> article, but no, that's because I'm a, you know, a, a juvenile at heart. Okay. Uh, moving on, breaking down slippy book, the new RCE flaw in Linux distros. This is from security online. A new vulnerability whimsically named slippy book has emerged as a formidable threat to the integrity of popular Linux distributions discovered by researcher Febin Monsaji. This remote code execution vulnerability identified as, yeah, it's in the show notes for X reader. And it's also in the show notes for a trill targets the very core of file parsing in Linux's prominent document viewers. Slippy Book is a critical path traversal and arbitrary file write flaw. It resides in Atril and Xreader, or Xreader, the default document viewers for the Mate environment and Linux Mint, respectively, and affects a range of widely used operating systems, including Kali Linux, Parrot, Security OS, Ubuntu Mate, and Zubuntu. 
This vulnerability enables the writing of arbitrary files to any location on the file system accessible to the users, thus paving the way for remote command execution. The Slippy Book vulnerability can be exploited in various ingenious ways. And it's listed here, Auto Start Maneuver. By placing a malicious .desktop entry in the auto start directory, attackers can ensure execution upon user login akin to the startup folder in Windows. SSH key writing, writing to the authorized keys file within the user's SSH directory, enabling immediate command execution via SSH if the system has SSH enabled. File execution on login, placing files like .bash profile or .bash login within malicious commands in the user's home directory can result in RCE, especially during non-GUI logins like SSH. Targeting directories for maximum impact, writing malicious files to directories like the local bin or the local lib Python site packages can grant control over the target system. The impact of Slippy Book is profound, especially for security researchers and desktop users of Kali, OS, and Linux Mint. The vulnerability allows attackers to execute remote commands, compromising system integrity and user privacy. The fact that it doesn't require overriding existing files to achieve its malicious ends only adds to its stealth and potency. Using the exploit, create a malicious document that executes the calculator app. The publication of proof of concept code and video demonstration by the researcher has sounded the alarm for users and administrators of affected Linux distributions. It's a stark reminder of the need for constant vigilance in the cyber world. Users must ensure timely updates and patches to their systems and maintain a keen eye on system behaviors and file integrity. Also, the researcher revealed another critical one-click RCE command injection vulnerability affecting popular Linux operating systems with Mate, Cinnamon, and some XFCE desktop environments. I felt like a large chunk of that article was not there, got cut out. But um, <clears throat> what it means is keep your stuff updated and be aware that there is a new vulnerability in our favorite distribution. Yeah, it, it mentions the CVEs, but it doesn't actually mention if there have been patches released. I can't remember seeing Xreader being patched. Um, no, neither. But maybe, I mean, I don't know that I even have Atrial installed, but Xreader is the default document viewer for, I mean, Atrial must be Mate and then, yeah, Xreader is Linux Mint. Okay, so yeah, I I mean, I use Xreader anytime I open a PDF, so um, it's definitely on the system. So anyway, hopefully they have come up with a patch. It always makes me nervous whenever they release this information and don't yeah. necessarily say... I know I kind of had an issue with how long some of the previous articles were, but I kind of wish there was a bit more to this <laughs> one because I, I would love to know, you know, what what they're adding to the bash profile, the bash login to access things over SSH or your, yeah. your authorized keys. You know, I can understand they're adding an authorized key so that someone else can uh, access your system remotely. But uh, is it in the wild? It doesn't say. You know, yeah. So. How widespread, how easy is it to, you know, to leverage? How um, is it adding things to your authorized keys? Yeah. I mean, I guess the CVs would probably describe it a little better, but yeah I, yeah, I don't disagree that the previous articles were excruciatingly long, but did at least cover, you know, more information. Um, 
Yeah, I'll probably end up looking this up. It's funny, every time we go through security stuff, it makes me want to just format my, <laughs> my OS and start from scratch. Right. And, you know? Yeah. And it also does make me really look at something like a, um, oh my God, I totally blanked, um, immutable distros where, you know, the core is sort of just an image and really you're not, you know, able to, I wonder Isolated if packages. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if like yeah. an immutable version of, of an OS wouldn't be susceptible to something like this. Anyway. Uh, if you've had SSH in enabled, then yeah, probably. I mean, you might be able to block out some of the auto start stuff there, but then again, maybe not. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know how helpful that would be, but <laughs> I don't know enough about immutables to, to be able to tell you. So yeah. Yeah. Let's uh, move on here. Keep things chugging. I know you're not feeling the greatest, so let's go to our bi-weekly wanderings. First up, me. Okay, now I was able to get a hold of a tap strap keyboard for $20. Normally they cost a lot more and um, th more than I'm willing to put forward for a very unknown device. It's a wearable keyboard and it normally costs up like 150 to $200, but I took a chance on an auction and I won. I got it for 20 bucks. It, it, it's an interesting idea and it's something I've always been, you know, at least somewhat interested in. It's uh, definitely a large learning curve and I'm not overly impressed with the durability of the device considering how much it was supposed to cost. I spent a few hours practicing with it and probably need to spend many more before, you know, I can be proficient with it, but I, I can get around with the cheat sheet handy. And honestly, I, I put several hours into it, even after I typed this up, I, I was able to perform on it, but, um, I'll, I'll get to that towards the, the, the end. Um, the typing is also a bit hit or miss and it gets worse as the battery gets lower. And some of the dexterity that is required is a bit difficult for me, but I'm learning and I do enjoy it. When the battery is high, it's good for typing and decent as a mouse. So long as you have the proper surface to use it on multicolored or textured surfaces seem to be a bit of a problem for it in the mouse mode. Um, and some of the le letters are difficult to get right. Um, I'm also still learning how to do capitalization and punctuation. I did get that down. Uh, standard numbers and letters are not difficult. Um, it's very good for controlling YouTube if you don't know all the, the letter commands and how to use them. But like I'm set, like I said, I'm not impressed with the durability. I had to repair one of the rubber loops to keep the strap in place that broke during the tightening process. My own fault for not realizing how delicate it was, but it does not give me high hopes for use of it long term. I have also taken a look at the next generation of this device, the Tap XR, which looks like it might not have the same issues with durability and be more comfortable to wear since it's just like a watch style thing. And it looks at your fingers through, I assume, uh, either a camera or like a laser that you're supposed to cut across using the, the same finger commands. I don't know if the control structure is the same. Um, but I think it'll be interesting to try one day, uh, that day being when I can get it for $20 instead of the 300 that it currently retails for. It sounds like if you, 
if you set expectations though, like you're saying it was good for some things, like maybe it would be an interesting alternative in some cases. I don't, I don't know. It, it could be. And, and, and I've seen videos of the guy that uh, invented it typing with it and he does a really good job, but it's mm. like, um, sometimes when I I'm trying to, to click E all I get is L L L, even though I'm just <laughs> clicking, clicking E or I'll, I'll click, um, no, wait, this is E, this is I. So whenever I click I, I'll end up with L or whenever I click E, I'll, I'll end up with T and maybe some of that's me. And then maybe some of that is just, you know, the sensitivity of the device, or maybe my fingers are just too fat for this thing and I can't get it properly tightened. So you're not jostling the the next sensor over instead of just the one that's uh, supposed to be jostling okay and then mm -hmm. like when the battery's high and when it's connected to my phone and i'm tapping on my leg instead of a hard surface it works pretty well but when i have to spend 20 minutes hitting delete retyping um the letter i and then hitting delete and retyping letter i or not being able to tell the difference on the screen between the i that i was trying to press and the l that actually got pressed because it was supposed to be capitalized but i didn't hit the three to capitalize it anyway it's frustrating but i've still enjoyed trying it out and i'm really glad that i got it for twenty dollars and not 150 dollars gotcha because I would be pissed if I had paid that much for it and worked <laughs> that poorly. Now, um, moving on to other things that I got for dirt cheap. Um, I was also able to purchase a mod mic for use with my headsets without mics. I was able to get it for $5 from Facebook Marketplace, which is a really good price considering that it goes new for like 85 bucks. Yeah. All I had to do was 3D print or purchase some new mounts for the thing. So I, I 3D printed some new mounts, which were supposed to take um, five millimeter by one millimeter magnets, but I didn't have any of the neodymiums that size. And the ones that I did have just weren't quite strong enough. They were a little bit narrower and they just wouldn't hold it into place. But I was able to pull some that would work from old casings that I had lying around. It works really well when compared to the uh, 2.4 gigahertz headset that I like to use, um, but I don't know how often I'm going to use it since it's not wireless, and I do like to be able to get up and move around uh, on certain of my podcasts. Or, or what's the point in, in not using the, the HyperX's or or the HyperX or my 99 Neos if I'm just going to be sitting in one place? Yeah, right. The guy was originally offering like $3 for the thing. And the only reason I paid five for it was because I only had a $5 bill on it. <laughs> but yeah, it, it's, it's, it's a decent mic. It sounds better than my uh, 2.4 gigahertz mic. And I really enjoyed it. You heard it the other, uh, what on Friday, Friday. Yeah. Oh, that when, sounded good. Um, yeah. I was doing all the soldering. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, I'm happy with that purchase and I, I can print out more of those mounts and they just snap on. It's not the securest connection, but considering that, you know, you're able to move it between headphones, uh, I think it's pretty good. And good. I've always wanted to have the mod mic and it makes yeah. a good backup mic. I've looked at it too, and, and I've always thought, you know, that's just so convenient because then no matter what, you can have a mic on your, on your headset. So that's cool. And it's the USB version, not the 3.5 millimeter version, which I also really wanted because 3.5 millimeter mics, unless you're willing to, to add a USB sound card, they never sound good. Right. So yep. the 3.5 or the USB one is, is for five bucks. Absolutely. And it makes yeah. a great backup mic, especially when my wife gets on some of the shows that mm -hmm. I like to be on like yeah. tilts or, or the, the Linux lug cast. I let her use my HyperX clone. 
and I'll just use the Audio Technicas and um, I'll be able to use the mod mic. I also need to fix, needed to fix my Nextcloud instance again, but only in regards to my backups for Android. Now I hadn't turned it on in a while because I had taken a picture with my phone in a while, so I didn't realize it. Uh, but I think it happened when I did the reformat, but I, like I said, I just don't take pictures very often. And when I did, it started throwing errors. Uh, the issue was a permissions problem, and when I checked the folders, the per permissions were correct. What I didn't realize is that the folder location I had was based on the desktop version and the download that it created. So there was another location that needed to be checked. When I went there, some of the files were owned by root, which I assume were created when I reinstalled, and some were owned by my local user. I changed the permissions to make everything writable and my backups started working again. Now, this all sounds very quick, but th this was like, you know, four or five hours of me beating my head against my computer trying to figure <laughs> out why the correct permissions were still incorrect. Yeah. Now, Been there, done that, my friend. Yeah. I had one of my LG HBS headsets basically disintegrate on me. The plastic on both sides that hold everything in place snapped and became useless. So I went through my parts bin and pulled out four more that were in good, in good order and a pair that needed fixing. During the live stream of Linux Lugcast, I sat and replaced the uh, stock earbuds with MMCX connections, and now I have a plethora of working headsets again. I still have a bunch of the retractables that need to be worked on, and I do like how those get out of my way especially on the left-hand side, so I will be working on fixing those as well. I have to just find my parts for it. I also need to look into some more batteries and maybe some power switches if I can ever get those replaced correctly. Those power switches are extremely difficult to, well, not necessarily to remove from the board, but um, put back onto the board without melting the plastic. They just wear out over time. I mean, the switches are like, that big and i've done the micro usb ports before and gotten those working correctly but those switches are a little bit daunting but yeah. for now with the um non-retractable ones like i'm wearing right now everything is good so they're working oh and i forgot to mention it's my eldest daughter's 21st birthday today oh, happy so birthday right after the stream today i will be making her favorite dinner which is my spaghetti all right i gave her a new phone for her birthday which is what she asked for so that because of even the cost of a cheap phone is still pretty high that's most yeah. of what she's getting for her birthday so i think she ended up with my uh backup phone which was that uh, moto g 5g 2023 version it's a nice phone yeah, um, and we had been planning on giving her one of the Note 10 Pluses when we upgraded, or when we planned to upgrade, which is really soon here. But the problem gets to be that they're still offering like $500 on trade-in on those phones. Wow. Yeah, and that brings down the cost of like the um, S24 Ultra significantly. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. So, yeah, I mean, we normally love to keep our old phones, but if we're trading in a four and a half year old phone for $500 off <laughs> of a $1,300 phone and T-Mobile is currently offering to double the memory. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, 
I've noticed that the that the carriers are starting to do that again, where they're really pushing getting customers to either trade in devices and getting like uh, Verizon's doing one with iPhones right now, where any apparently any iPhone, and I don't know what any really means. There has to be some stipulation, but apparently, you know, in the commercials at least they're saying any iPhone, and you get a whatever the current one is, and it seemed like for a long time carriers just, you know, obviously in the old days they subsidized everything and you got a new one every two years. And then it went to, you could add the payments for it to the bill. And now it seems like they're kind of pushing back towards the, here's the new shiny. With like T-Mobile, um, they will basically offer you a free phone with a $35 fee, like stocking fee. Um, mm-hmm. or it might be an a-hole fee. I'm not sure. <laughs> but anyways, you go in there with any working Samsung phone. I, I literally walked in there with an S3 and I, I walked out with a, um, brand new, um, OnePlus Nord N200. Now, wow. yes, that's a low end phone. So, you know, it's, <laughs> uh, but it's free and it's getting updates, which obviously the S3 isn't. Yeah. And, and the, Nord N200 had the, um, it was either the 90 hertz screen or the 120 hertz screen. And my son's using it now. A lot of the back end stuff, it, you know, the, the stats are, are lower, but oh my God, that screen just looks gorgeous and it's so buttery smooth and Jojo loves it. So I I can't complain. And also the, the same thing you can get, I think the Moto G now under the, under the same thing. You take in a phone. I think I could take in one of the S7s that I have that are one, no longer getting updates and two, barely connect to the network. They're still good hardware. It's just they don't work on the networks anymore the way they used to. Yeah. So. Yeah. But there's still uses for them around the house, like music players oh. and, but how many do I need? That's true. But it's funny that, you know, for years I felt like I had so many laying around, but of course my daughter getting older and now using a phone of her own. So now there, it was, it's sort of a chain of like, I would do a hand-me-down to someone. And that's why we were so big on keeping our old phones. Yeah. Like those S7s, um, my daughters both have S7s. Plus I got all the S7s that the rest of my family didn't want to use as backups for their phones or backups for my phone if I needed it. Right. So they went through our backups of the S7s. They've gone through a couple of different other S7s, and now it's just they're so out of date they don't want to run them anymore. So, well, I don't know if you remember last year. I had actually my Pixel 5a just died, and I didn't have a, an old one laying around, and so I ended up needing to just not have a phone for about five days, which was pretty crazy. Yeah, I survived. It was an interesting experiment. I, I have the S sevens currently as backup phones. I, I need something a little bit newer for my backup. Yeah. S sevens pushing it. If my main phone breaks, I need to be able to be in proper contact with work. So yeah, uh, yeah eventually I'm going to need to make another trade or something or buy another low cost updated phone just so I have it just in case. Yeah. That's it for me. All right. Well, I really only had one thing to talk about, and that's uh, audio editing. I've done the audio editing for the past two episodes of Distro Hopper's Digest, uh, taking over for Tony Hughes after he'd been graciously doing it for some time, even though not being a part of the show, at least a presenter on the show. So I just kind of (laughs) thought, 
since he was doing it, it felt like maybe it would be more proper for me to offer to do it. And and I had edited audio in the in the past and just haven't done it recently. So, um, but I've kept it simple thus far, opting to use like Audacity as my main editing tool. And Audacity is a very capable tool, but it's also lacking in some more advanced capabilities of like a digital audio workstation software or DAW, things like Ardor, Bitwig, and Reaper, which uh, Reaper is the one that I've used in the past. It isn't free or open source software, but it they seem like a pretty ethical company and offers a solid product for a reasonable price. I, I can't complain about a small business doing good things with their software. Considering how insanely expansive the capabilities are, uh, it's really reasonable for $60, but they give you 60 days to use it for free. But one of the more powerful aspects of Reaper is the ability to completely customize the UI. So it's it's a almost like a framework in a way or a sandbox where it's everything's different panels and you can configure it in terms of like what is visible which types of controls and track operations and, you know, whether there's like a metronome for creating music and beats or so it's just really malleable in terms of being able to rework the layout and the UI itself to support whatever kind of workflow that you're, you're looking for it. And most DAWs come configured leaning more towards like music production, but Reaper in particular can be pretty easily transformed into spoken word setup or for stuff like voiceover and podcast production. Uh, I followed a series of videos from a voiceover artist that I've linked to in the show notes. Uh, his, his name's YouTube name is booth junkie. Mike Delgado, I think is his name, but he's, he's a super knowledgeable voiceover artist, and he shares a lot of like his expertise and stuff um, on YouTube and I think on a website as well. But he has a whole series of videos explaining how to conform, how to change the UI in Reaper to be more appropriate for voice production. So anyway, the, the main advantage of a DAW over something like Audacity is the use of real-time non-destructive effects and filters, which let you ma manipulate the audio without fundamentally changing it. And essentially, so you can use things like layered effects, noise gates, compressors, you know, pitch moderation, like it's, uh, DSers. There's so many different like filters and things, and you can layer them and adjust the, you know, the, like how strong they are and what they're changing. And so you can really be very specific with how you tune the audio. And at any time you can turn them on and off to get different effects. Whereas with something like Audacity, which is considered destructive, you let's say do noise removal on the track in Audacity and it fundamentally changes the track itself. And then you add another layer of some other effect on top of that, and then another one, and then another one. And so you end up getting 10 layers deep and then realizing, oh, the noise reduction um, stomped all over the quiet parts of the recording. And now to get back to that, I have to undo 10 levels of changes. So um, it's kind of like, you know, if you're working on a document and you make a bunch of changes, you when you undo, you're undoing like a whole bunch of stuff, maybe to get back to a change you made earlier. And the difference with non-destructive is that you are able to just literally turn things on and off. And so it's very sort of convenient and flexible in that sense. Now, Audacity has recently added the ability to use real-time effects, but it's still 
compared to a DAW, it's still a little bit rudimentary. Um, and I'm sure they're going to continue to improve and evolve that. So at some point, you know, I, I don't doubt that Audacity will catch up at least for more modest production. DAWs do a little more than what I've described here, but you know, I, I, I think Audacity will eventually become more capable. So I'm hoping to get back to using Reaper this month. I want to get it set, installed and set up and go through the process of, you know, reconfiguring the UI and all that. Um, and then hopefully be ready for the next episode. So uh, we'll see how that goes. And the one last thing I wanted to mention on audio production is a service that I've been using for a number of years called Auphonic. It's A-U-P-H-O-N-I-C. Their claim is that Auphonic is your all-in-one audio post-production web tool to achieve a professional quality result, which just doesn't really sound like much, but it actually is true. All-in-one aspect in particular, like I said, I mentioned, I mentioned using it years ago, and it feels kind of like magic in, in a way where you upload your audio file and you can either upload raw audio and have it do some some editing to it for you, or it can just be things like you have your finished project and you want to do some leveling of the audio of the different tracks and stuff like that. So one of the most challenging things, and if anybody who's ever done podcast production in particular, is trying to get the levels of different people from different locations. So I'm using my microphone here in my, you know, uh, room and the treatment that, or, or not, treated room that I'm in um, is going to introduce a different, you know, sound or level. And then, you know, Joe's in his space and then, you know, Bill and everybody's in their own space. And, and also the, you know, the mics have different gain settings or different characteristics where some mics are warmer or, than others and stuff like that. And it's very difficult to get that to be homogenous in the sense that it all sounds reasonably similar and no, nobody is like jarringly different. Um, now, obviously, if somebody's in a terrible room or using an awful microphone or something, then there's very limited <laughs> amounts of what can be done. But for people that are using reasonably good microphones in a reasonably quiet location, this does an amazing job of just pulling the levels to a very similar level, <laughs> obviously, but, uh, but then in making everybody sort of sound very similar, which is, again, feels kind of like magic whenever you've tried to do it yourself and trying to, you know, adjust filters and get it to be uh, clean. And it has some other features like, uh, auto EQ, which removes unwanted frequencies and sibilance, deessers and stuff like that it creates a clear, warm and pleasant sound cut filler words, which is really cool and silence, which automatically cuts silent segments beyond a certain limit that you set pauses and filler words like, ah, uh, and, um, and, you know, mm, and, you know, different sort of things like that. And it does it in multiple languages, which is kind of interesting. They provide two hours of free processing per month. So if you're doing a podcast, that's an hour long, you wouldn't even ever have to necessarily pay for the service. But if you are you know, doing multiple podcasts or, you know, creating, you know, uh, voiceover work or something, you can pay for a subscription that gives you a certain block of time per month, or you can just buy blocks of time, which is nice to just buy 10 hours worth of processing. And, and I bought, I guess I bought the 10 hours, uh, like I said, three years ago, and I still have probably six hours of time left. Very cool tool. If anyone's out there creating audio podcasts and stuff and having a hard time or just wants to create a more 
clean and professional sounding product, Auphonic is really great. Hopefully Audacity does make those changes to make it more similar to Reaper. I know people have been talking about the destructor of nature of it for at least six, seven years now, or at least yeah. as long as I've been doing podcasting. Yeah. So, and that does sound like it would be extremely convenient to be able to, you know, not have to back out all the other changes I made and redo them to fix one mistake early on. Yeah. And there's also not the processing time. So if you have a podcast, like it's an hour long or two hours long and you apply an effect or a filter to it, sometimes it can take minutes to actually apply the effect. And if it, if you don't like how it sounds then you have to undo it, redo it, undo it, redo it. Whereas in a DAW, you literally just make a sw small adjustment and it's all in real time. So just, it's way more efficient and that's really the biggest difference. want to do the innards or skip it i was curious to idea of whether people use dedicated desktops anymore i i feel like desktops have become less important well i would say that laptops are, are really kind of taking the place of desktops in, in a lot of cases unless you're a power user like us i have a desktop and i do too I, I use it as a server and so do I. <laughs> you know, I use it as a regular computer and all those other things. And so, yeah. Um, but most of that you could do with a laptop and some external storage. Right. As long as, cause you know, your laptops these days, 32 gigs of Ram, 64 gigs of Ram and I nine processors, I seven processors, whatever. Yeah. You have to leave them, you know, plugged in to do a lot of it, but you can still turn them into anything you can, um, a desktop computer. Well, and the other advantage of a, of a laptop, especially using it as a server is that it's got a built-in battery backup, right? Mm -hmm. So if the power goes out in a lot of cases, unless the battery's trash, you're going to probably get at least an hour, you know, if not several, so, you know, you're not going to have to worry about, because I, I, I used to have battery, a UPS, you know, uninterrupted, uninterrupted power supply years ago. I had sort of inherited one from work and replaced it's like, <laughs> it's, it had a, I guess like a motorcycle or an ATV battery in it. So I replaced that and then it worked for, I don't know, five to six, seven years, something like that. And then the battery started to die again. And I thought, you know. For the number of times that it's actually been useful, like it just, it, it's not worth maintaining well, those it. battery, th th those uninterruptible power supplies, they're, they're meant to, um, keep everything on to do a graceful shutdown. Right. And that's it. That's it. So five minutes, 15 minutes, whatever. And a lot of them, it's all scripted in to also do the shutdown right then. So unless you're, you're running a backup generator, you're really not going to be able to, to keep your desktop going for any period of time right and the only advantage really of a desktop and i would say that there's two distinct advantages to a desktop over a laptop one is cooling you can cool a desktop which means that you can um even take lower end hardware and just you know crank it up overclock it whatever and get eek that little bit more power out of it and still keep it cool and um yeah. two upgradability you know, a lot of laptops, you simply can't upgrade. The things are soldered to the motherboard. You might be able to do some upgrades to the, the RAM, et cetera, et cetera. But 
really for upgradability and the ability to like add more hard drives into the case itself, you can't beat a desktop computer. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> now, obviously, um, at a certain point, you can't upgrade the processor anymore because they changed the socket or, um, you can't upgrade the RAM anymore because it's, it's reached to the, that hard limit from, um, the hardware itself. Right. But it's uh, a much longer life cycle than something like a laptop, where if the uh, processor dies, in most cases, you're not going to find somebody that is willing or able to replace it. Or yeah. if the um, graphics processor dies in your laptop, same thing. Some people can, but you're going to be paying through the nose for that type of technical know-how. Yeah, it's removing a chip and reballing it, but how many people are actually able to do that and have it come together at the end of it <laughs> or or have the equipment to do it without melting everything around it? Because, yeah, uh, you know, an air gun seems like an easy thing to use until, you know, you send all of the other components around that APU flunk. Ask me how I know. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. It, it It is a skill and not many people are going to have it. like the other tools that are sometimes used to, to heat the entire board evenly. So you don't have all the other issues that come from heating one section of the board and not another layer shifting on the board. It's just easier in that case to have a desktop so that you can replace the parts. Uh, laptops to that extent are somewhat disposable. I hate to say it that way. Um, as long as the hardware doesn't go bad, you can keep using a laptop forever, but yeah. And I think the the other aspect of a desktop is, and it, this is, you know, my experience coming from building my own PCs and just really enjoying the ability to pick the components that make sense for me and being able to usually save a little bit of money over buying a pre-configured system. I, I have only had maybe two store-bought desktops and I really had issues with both. Uh, yeah. The first one was, was just a Dell with, you know, windows 98 on it, you know, all those years ago. And that was more or less because I just hadn't been doing anything with computers in a long time. And it was just easier for me to get started on a store-bought system. But I found myself having a lot of issues with Dell did these weird things and they still do with the way they design their cases and like everything's sort of, uh, customized in terms of like some of the power supplies and the, you know, the way stuff fits together, there's not a lot of space in them. And so after dealing with that, then I built my own computer and, and from there it was just sort of like, oh, well, this is much better. And I got to probably saved a couple hundred dollars and I got to pick what I wanted and then upgrading is, you know, like you said, like if I wanted to get a new video card, if I needed to get a power supply, if I needed, you know, all of those modular components, it was easy to just replace the one piece instead of, but again, at the time, laptops were much less common. Uh, laptops were not like a, affordable. A, yeah. Ex affordable at all, really. And, and also just, you know, the miniaturization of, of computer hardware, uh, it was really still sort of in its infancy, the, the wattages and TPUs and heat output of those systems, it made it very difficult. I mean, I remember having gaming laptops as a workstation simply because it was powerful enough to do the things I needed to do, but they would scream like jet engines because it was so hard to cool 
even in a thick, <laughs> heavy, you know, laptop. Right. And right. now it's, you know, you see things like, I mean, it's not the, the best example, but an Apple M chip, you know, where you get ridiculous battery life, uh, almost no heat, incredible processing power and, and things, the TPUs and the wattages and the, the heat overhead and like all of that is, uh, coming down more and more all the time. And unless you're doing really heavily intensive, like encoding or crypto mining, or at this point, like I rebuilt my desktop probably two years ago because it had just sort of reached its, its usable life. And like you said, I couldn't upgrade the, the processor because the board, the, the, uh, uh, chipset chip and the, set. and the, you know, socket and all that stuff. It just wasn't compatible. I mean, I could have bought an older generation processor, but I wanted something newer. And honestly, the cost of a motherboard is fairly negligible. And I have been using the same case for over a decade at this point, right. <laughs> I just keep yeah. changing out components. So that there's still some advantages, but I find myself outside of using it as a media server. I have a NAS that's a dedicated system for file storage and file server activities. I have done some, you know, video editing and stuff like that on that system, because like you said, it's, but I, what I've found is that the difference in speed between my laptop and the convenience of using my laptop versus going and sitting in front of my desktop, pretty negligible at this point. So I, I don't have a lot of use cases left, I guess is what I'm saying. Oh, and we, we could have a whole nother discussion about just motherboards and, and how they set up their um, PCI sockets and why it's on a, we, we have a PCI X16 next to a PCIe next to a PCI 8 next to possibly another PCIe if you have a larger motherboard. But if you use the PCI X16, you can't use the, the PCIe because then you block the airflow for the graphics card or it's completely covered by the graphics card because it's a two slot graphics card. But then you have those completely unused lanes for that PCIe because they're completely separated, but they're useless. And then you can't, if you have a double, double size PCI X16 uh, graphics card, you can't use the X8 slot for another graphics card or for another component because it will block the airflow. So you can do water cooling, which might, you know, fix some of that, but, oh, it, it, that particular topic and the way they set up those slots just absolutely drives me nuts. And I think you're, you're talking about people making a conscious decision in that case. Like they, they need that card that is powerful enough to do ray tracing or whatever it is that they want to do in their video games. And, um, you know, and if you're a gamer, I still think PC gaming is the, I mean, unless I'm mistaken, I feel like PC gaming is still the top of the heap in terms of performance and capability with ray tracing and all these different things. But if you look at like the, the AMD processors for the last couple of generations for a while there, they weren't coming out with G processors, which are their processors that are APUs that will also do graphics. So even if you had like the, um, Ryzen 5 uh, 5600, you didn't have the 5600G, which means that you needed to run some kind of graphics card, which means that you can't really run any other peripherals. 
that speaks to the flexibility, I guess, of a of a desktop in general, and and not only that, but the form factors and the ability to create media PCs and just basically have different use cases and and build different things. And I think there's still, I mean, I would be very sad if we got to a point where you couldn't build a system for yourself. I don't know that for me much anymore, it's as important as maybe it used to be, but I do like the idea that, you know, people can still do that if they want to. But I also recognize the value of hardware that would otherwise maybe go to a landfill being good enough to do a lot of the server tasks. You know, again, if you're just running a media server and you need to be able to making media available at different uh, bit depths and stuff like that. If you are needing to deal with that kind of stuff, like in a lot of cases, an old laptop is going to be good enough to do that. Takes up less space. Like we said, it has a, you know, built-in battery backup. You know, in a lot of cases, it has enough ports to do the things you need it to do. Um, So I don't know that if I had a need for a server that I would even necessarily think of a desktop at this point. And that's not even talking about like mini PCs or, you know, NUCs. I mean, I know they're not making NUCs anymore, but things along those lines. Yeah, I just, like I said, I wasn't sure if, if anybody at this point said, yeah, I absolutely need a desktop PC because of X, Y, and Z, or if everybody just kind of said, well, I could take it or leave it. I've used uh, a, a Nook clone as my main PC in the garage before. Essentially, I had my my old server before the the one I have now. It just was getting older and older, and it needed a direct connection to uh, my router. And so, a, a little computer that I got for like twenty five bucks, I was using as my main computer, and it was doing everything I needed it to out there. So long as I had my server doing all the other things in here. So laptops, pre-built stuff, they are getting better. I do agree. And they should be able to cover 90% of your needs. But I think I'm always going to need a desktop of some kind. Yeah. And I wonder for myself if there will ever be a time where I don't uh, have one. The the question of needing it. Maybe when we're in a nursing home or something, they don't give give us proper internet access. Maybe then we won't have a need for a server. And I'm curious to know if anyone out there, when you hear this, if you have any hard and fast need for a desktop PC, if it's gaming, I understand that because, you know, PC gaming, I still feel like is probably the the best experience, but I'm curious to know if there are other things that you're doing with a desktop. So uh, drop us a line and let us I know. I don't really think that there is anything that can't be done on a laptop that could be done on a desktop. Yeah. Especially again with thermal loads coming down so low, I haven't had something that, I mean, yes, the fans will spin up and you know, it obviously is more intensive processing to do certain things on the laptop, but it's not like in the past where there was a distinct and stark difference between me trying to do something on even a, a like a gaming laptop versus a modest desktop computer. Cause like you said, I think cooling was probably one of the biggest reasons and the inability to keep the processor from scaling down from throttling down because of heat. Well, here, here's another question then in the same vein. Um, when is it no longer a laptop? 
laptop. I mean, <laughs> if I have the, a laptop here and then I hook up um, an external graphics card to it, which, which you know, uh, goes over USB-C or Thunderbolt or whatever, and, and then I, I hook up an external storage box to it so that it's got extra hard drives, you know, a couple of 12 right. terabytes or whatever, and I'm running uh, the different software from the system and, and I have things hooked to it like a mouse and keyboard and an external screen, and, you know... Yeah, I technically could disconnect all that and walk away with the laptop and still have a working computer, but it's no longer doing any of the things that I set it up for. So, you know, once you add all that external hardware to your laptop, is it in order to make it a, a functioning system to do all the things that you want? Is it still really a laptop? Yeah, I, I don't disagree. I think that that is kind of a crossover, right? Is a laptop considered to be a laptop because it's a self-contained unit? And as soon as you start hooking things in, I don't know. I think I would probably define it as the processor, the battery, the primary inputs in terms of a touchpad and the keyboard and a screen, you know, all of that together is what constitutes a, a laptop or a portable device. Like, can you pick it up and walk away with it okay. and have it still function as a computer? If, if the stuff that you've connected to it is fundamental to the system and you can't use it by moving it, then yeah, maybe it's not so, a laptop. So then when does a tablet become a laptop? I don't know. Maybe whenever you introduce a keyboard and external pointing device. Or, or a proper operating system and processor. I mean, you could, Potentially say the DeX on a Samsung device gets you a pretty f long way towards what you'd consider a normal desktop. You're still pigeonholed by mobile browser and, you know, file manager and stuff like that. But I would think for a student, I mean, it's just probably as good as a Chromebook um, or at least close. The only advantage a Chromebook might have is that it has a full web browser. And you can turn it into a Linux machine. Yeah. Except that a lot of Chromebooks, unless you're getting a high-end one, aren't particularly powerful and don't tend to run. A lot of Linux machines aren't all that powerful. Yeah, good questions. Okay, um, I guess let's move on to vibrations from the ether then, because you and I can talk all day about other <laughs> stuff. And yes. we both know it. Absolutely. All right, we did get one piece of um, mail, and this is from Jaden Blackman. This is ongoing with the um, the stylus stuff that we've been uh, talking about recently. To answer your questions about pressure sensitivity on Linux, I took a few screenshots and a screen recording showing results of pressure sensitivity in RNote Journal, pronounced Journal++, I believe, and Krita. The screen recording is of the tablet tester that's built into Krita. The P near the middle of middle is of the pressure reading that Krita is getting. I hope this helps. So I, I did look at the pictures. They're not included in the show notes. I did watch the video. Um, and it does show uh, the, the variations in pressure sensitivity using a, a stylus, which I'm really happy that that's working now because I know that that was a, an issue for a while. I don't know when that ended. Thank you for sending that to us and showing it to us. Um, I will hopefully be able to test it out one of these days. I'm not, I am not an artist, so I have less use for this. 
but on um, the Linux Lake Tech Show, uh, we did talk to a person, we interviewed a person that is doing comic books, making comics using a tablet and um, Manjaro. So they have a dedicated tablet and stylus for that, for specifically for that, that is linked to a Manjaro machine and automatically takes it all there. I'm trying to get Paige to come on the show um, at least once just to discuss that whole process. I know that she has tried out several different styluses and several different styles. She was a big fan of Wacom for a while, but has since moved on to something else. So hopefully um, we can get her or someone else just to come on because we've gotten a lot of responses about this one topic. And so I think uh, that would be good for a deeper dive from someone that knows what they're talking about on it. Yeah, I absolutely agree. But it is good news to know that it there is variability in the pressure sensitivity. That's, that's great. Thank you for sending that in. And, um, we will try and get someone on with more information. Heck, if you want to come on and, and discuss it, if you have a lot of experience, then, uh, hop on our discord, um, let us know and we will work it out. to check this out this is the first one is from ars technica on january 18th internet pioneer vint surf announced that dr david l mills the inventor of the network time protocol ntp died peacefully at age 85 on january 17th 2024 more information is available at the link and that is sad news uh he will be missed but um, it might not be the high score, but it does seem like a good score. No doubt. And something so sort of fundamental. And uh, I think when I see stuff like that, it just makes me realize how much has changed in technology in such a short amount of time and how, you know, within my lifetime, let alone someone who's 85, you know, he's got 40 years on me or so, uh, to have seen so much changes and to have created something so fundamental that's still, I mean, key to keeping systems in, in synchronization today. Yeah. Pretty cool. It's awesome. And that's going to be used for however many years to come. So yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. brilliant. Um, and our next, check this out. Um, there is a link in the show notes. This is from Ken Fallon at HPR. Um, I'm kind of summarizing this, but, uh, they've been thinking about closing down HPR after 18 years. Do what appears H to be HPR is sorry. HPR is hacker public radio for hacker public radio. System. Sorry yeah. about that. That's I, okay. I'm so used to it. So. <laughs> uh, due to what appears to be low interest since people are not uploading shows. So, um, if you have a show idea or you ever wanted to try your hand at podcasting, um, and, and don't want to, you know, jump all the way into it then definitely head over to you know the link in the show notes hub.hackerpublicradio.org and follow the instructions i mean if you're nervous about it then uh record the show and just have it added to the reserve queue um and it will be released if only if they run out of other shows that's the whole point of the reserve queue um so you want to try it out you have an idea that you think is interesting put it on there um it, they prefer hacker related or tech related 
but really um, just about anything that you find interesting, someone else is going to find interesting too. Make a show, put it on there. You want to talk about nitro gloves and their benefits, then by all means, go ahead and do it. Um, seriously, also, if you're, if you're not subscribed to Hacker Public Radio, even just to see the titles and what the subjects are, I highly recommend that. Uh, you don't have to listen to every podcast that they put out, but you know, sooner or later, you're going to see something that piques your interest and then you just grab it and you listen to it. If you find something that you don't like, then you can make a response to it. Anything will help out. Someone will listen to it and someone will like it. Granted, someone will also hate it. I hadn't understood what HPR was all about. And, um, having looked at it this past week, I am considering doing something and they're, they're usually fairly short. You know, they like to get things out kind of every day. Um, but yeah, just 10, 15 minutes, something uh, reasonably short. And I don't know, I'm just, I'm trying to kick around ideas and think of like what, what I could do, but I'm sure there's something. Do it on, um, what was it? Alphonic. Maybe that's actually a good idea. Okay, moving on to housekeeping and announcements. Thank you for listening to this episode of Midcast. If you see something that you'd like to hear about, tell us. Send us an email at midcast at midcast.org. Join us live on YouTube. Post at the Midcast subreddit. Chat with us on Telegram and Discord or post directly at midcast.org. Our next episode is 2 p.m. U.S. Central Time on Sunday, February 4th, 2024. And there's a link to get that converted to your time zone in the show notes. Next Roundtable live stream, 2 p.m. U.S. Central Time on Saturday, 27th, 2024. There's a link in the show notes to get that converted to your time zone. Next Roundtable live stream, 2 p.m. U.S. Central Time on Saturday, February 10th, 2024. And there's a link in the show notes to get that converted to your time zone. Live stream information is at mincast.org slash live stream. wrap up uh if you like the sound of my voice i'm on a couple other podcasts i'm on the linux link tech show which is at tllts.org i'm on um, the linux lugcast along with eric which you can catch at linuxlugcast.com uh, you can send me an email directly jb at mintcast.org or you can buy me a coffee with kofi Moss couldn't be here today. He has some links in the show notes on where you can get him that's full circle weekly news distro helpers digest Bardmoss at pm.me, at Zyvla at hostux.social, and also his other information can be found at itsmoss.com. Bill also could not be here today. You can catch him at bill at mincast.org, bill underscore h on Discord, at wchauser3 at fostodon.org on Mastodon, or you can check out his other podcasts, Linux OTC and 3Fat Truckers. Majid also could not be here today. Dr. Majid at mincast.org at atypicaldoctor870 on Twitter, atypicaldoctor on Instagram, and the Atypical Doctor podcast on Spotify. Eric? I'm also on the DistroHoppers Digest and Linux OTC podcast, as well as Linux Saloon and Linux Lugcast streams. If you'd like to get in touch with me, I can be reached by email at eric at mintcast.org. Now, before we leave, we want to make sure to acknowledge some of the people who make Mintcast possible. 
Bill for our audio editing, archive.org for hosting our audio files, Hobstar for our logo, and it RD for the animated Discord logo, Londoner for our time syncs and various other contributions, also Bill Hauser for hosting the server, which runs our website, website maintenance, and the Nextcloud server on which we host our show notes and raw audio. We'd also like to thank the Linux Mint development team for the fine distro we love to talk about. Thanks, Clem. Thanks, Clem. And co. This has been another episode of the Mintcast podcast. The show notes for this episode are at mintcast.org. You can send us email at mintcast at mintcast.org. Join us in our Discord channel and our Telegram group. You can find more information about Linux Mint at www.linuxmint.com. Thanks to Interfection for our theme music, and thanks for listening to this episode of Mintcast. Mintcast.